Tonight I'd like to talk about the theme of empathy in the context of some specific world events. So I just spent um, best better part of a month in Europe. Um, and as you know, Europe is engulfed in a huge uh, refugee crisis. And it was very interesting to be there in the middle of that and all the various um, political, social uh, contentions and upheavals following the, you know, the catastrophic, tragic war in Syria and also in other parts of the, whether it's Afghanistan or elsewhere, but particularly the Syrian crisis and this huge waves of um, asylum seekers moving their way across uh, Turkey and Southern Europe and trying to head to Northern Europe. There's something like four million Syrians in, in, in some kind of refugee status, 12, 12 million people being displaced in their own country. And so I don't, know how, I don't know how much has been portrayed in the media, sometimes inaccurate, sometimes quite inaccurate of what's actually going on. So, I mean, currently there's I mean, the varying accounts of from three to five to seven hundred thousand people trying to make their way northwards, if not more. And some very harrowing uh, tragedies following those uh, attempts to find refuge and safety. So particularly crossing the seas from Turkey to Greece, there's 2,600 people died trying to make that crossing this year. Um, and when I first, I forget now exactly the timing of when I got there, but the as I've been tracking this for a little while, my, my, I'm from England, my family's in England, and so they're also very uh, connected to what's happening, um, as our friends in Europe. And the initial reaction is, uh, is somewhat of a closed-minded fear response and um, from various governments and people of wanting to close borders and tighten security and build walls and um, not in my backyard kind of syndrome, which is not unfamiliar. There was a huge uh, crisis, but uh, on, on the, in the, the shores of France, people trying to get into England and the UK and the UK government. Very intransigent about letting anybody in, um, create a lot of conflict, and and then, as you may know, the the what what turned the tide of uh, public sentiment and then and then political sentiment was the picture of the two-year-old boy, Syrian boy, found dead on the shore from his parents trying to escape, trying to make it to. Uh, Greece, I believe. And it suddenly turned from being a political issue, 
to a humanitarian issue, from a not-in-my-backyard issue to these are people just like me, trying to find a better life, trying to find safety, trying to find um, you know, future for their children. And it's just interesting to see the power of a photograph, you know, just like when the, that picture of the, the man standing up to the tanks in Tiananmen Square, you know, the power of a photograph to, make, to wake us up, to help evoke that sense of humanity and commonality and care and empathy or compassion that we're not so different that we all want to be safe, that we all want to find refuge, whatever our refuge is. It doesn't take away the tragedy or the sadness. You know, the, the words from his father who said, I want to bury my son and I want to wait to die by his side. So distraught. So I want to share a poem that I haven't read for a long time that gets read a lot in Dharma circles. Um, but I, I was rereading it in, in light of um, this particular crisis. And it's by the Palestinian poet Naomi Shihab Nye. Some of you will be quite familiar with this poem, so see if you can listen with fresh ears. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand and what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of Kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho on a poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow, you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So interesting just to reflect on your own response to, you know, this is one of, of course, many tragedies and many crises that are happening, whether it's in Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq or Sudan. Or and to see what, what one's heart responses to it, whether we close down out of numbness, out of fear, out of not wanting to feel overwhelmed? Is there a compassionate response? Is there just, just notice how these things touch us, whether we're numbed by the, the onslaught of so many different crises. 
And it was interesting to s- just as I was traveling in Europe, the different responses I would, I would encounter with from different people, both positive and negative. This is a quote from Moshin Hamid, who says, Empathy is finding echoes of another person in yourself. Empathy is finding echoes of another person in yourself. When we can find those echoes, then there's less separation. There's more of a sense of kinship. There's more sense of, well, of course a natural thing would be to help, because we're not separate, we're not other. So this is interesting. Phenomena happened in Iceland. Iceland is a huge country of population 310,000, about half the size of San Francisco. And um, this is a story I came across in Daily Good. Uh, it reads, the thousands of Icelanders have said they would welcome Syrian refugees into their homes after their government announced last month it would accept just 50 people into the country. In a Facebook campaign launched by Icelandic author Brindis Bjorn, Bjorn, I can't read, I can't, Bjorn, Bjorn Vinsdottir, some 12,000 people uh, offered to welcome refugees into their homes, which is 4% of the population, which is a very significant. So if that was the States, it'd be the equivalent of 13.5 million people offering their homes for refugees. It's a really phenomenal, um, and maybe that would be true if we actually had a campaign and actually uh, asked who would be willing to take in people of in desperate need. And this, uh, this author, Brindis, goes on to write, she says, refugees are human resources, experience, and skills. Refugees are our future spouses, best friends, our next soulmate, the drummer in our children's band, our next colleague, Miss Iceland 2022, the carpenter who finally fixes our bathroom, the chef in the cafeteria, the fireman, the hacker, and the television host. Breaking down barriers, right? These are people, these are just people just like us who happen to be uh, born into a country with horrific circumstances. So spending some time in England, which is where I was teaching, um, where the government had a very uh, cold response, um, as can often be the way with political uh, narrow-mindedness, and until this photo came out, and then the tide of opinion uh, went against the prevailing political opinion, and then suddenly the government was backtracking, trying to assuage public uh, outcry, and uh, but still only opened a pitiful amount of 4,000 refugees a year they, they promised to take in, and Germany offered to take in 800,000. Significant, significant uh, opening of doors. So I've been reflecting quite a bit on this quality of empathy, which has two facets, has a cognitive and and an emotional. The the cognitive is like, I can put myself in your shoes, I can use my imagination to see what it'd be like, or imagine at least, however 
imperfect way, I can have some sense of the of what that might must be like to be in such a vulnerable state. And the emotional component is we feel, we can sense, we look at the photo of the dead boy, or we see the photo of the crying father, or we see the desperation of the refugees who come to Hungary and the walls being erected and they're no longer allowed safe passage. And just feel the, the terror and the sadness and the grief and the disbelief in, in these people's eyes. So there's a story from the texts that speaks to this quality of, of the Buddha and, and, and any great teacher uh, understands the, the power of this quality. So the, the Buddha's sitting one day and, and a woman comes to him extremely distraught because her son, her firstborn son, uh, has died. And uh, she's extremely bereft and grief-stricken and unconsolable. And she comes to the Buddha because she's heard that he's a great healer, a great teacher, and asks him to heal her son, bring her son back to life. And the Buddha says, okay, well first I have to ask you to do something. I have to, you to, a- I have to ask you to find a sesame seed uh, from a house where there's been no death. So she's uplifted by the possibility of accomplishing that task and having her son healed. So she goes knocking in the local village, knocks on the first door and says, can you spare a sesame seed? And then family says, of course. And she says, but it has to be from a house where there's been no death. And they say, what do you mean? Of course, there's been many deaths here. My child, my grandfather, so she goes on to the next house. Same story. Of course we can offer you sesame seed. Oh, but from a house with no death? That's impossible. Sorry. And she goes around and eventually goes around the whole village and cannot find a home, a family without death, without loss, without grief. And she realizes this is the nature of being human. This is the nature of being alive on this planet is there is birth and there is death. And there's uncertainty, and there's loss, and there's grief. And so that helps her come to some greater ease with her loss. She buries her son, and she comes to the Buddha and asks to take refuge, to join the the monastic Sangha. So very beautiful, skillful um, teaching, where the Buddha's having someone in this very difficult circumstance, see that this is a human condition, to see that in others, to empathize and also to help her heal her own condition. (coughs) (coughs) So, what's interesting about this quality of empathy, which is a really beautiful human quality and is, uh, is, is now being researched a lot to understand the difference between empathy and compassion because there's a lot of uh, intense uh, 
fatigue, and particularly in the caring professions, people working with pain, suffering, death, loss, and um, wanting to understand what's the cause of the fatigue, the burnout, the high burnout, and which was formerly called compassion fatigue, but was now understood more as empathy fatigue, where we can feel and resonate and feel the pain of another, but if it lacks compassion, which if it lacks this more dynamic, active wish to help, to heal, to respond, then it seems to be more depleting, more fatiguing. <coughs> so this is a quote from Martin Luther King, which speaks to, again, reading these, some of these readings in the light of being in, the, in, in, in Europe, I feel I read them in a different way. He says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All persons are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. And this is certainly very much reverberating in Europe, the sense of how do we hold this existential dilemma where millions are displaced, millions are wanting to integrate to seek asylum. Can we enjoy our privileged existence knowing that there's so much tragedy and pain in the world. So interesting to hear uh, Pope Francis gave a, I'm not sure what the papal edict, is that what it's called? Papal dictum, papal something, order, (laughs) to the bishops and archbishops um, that they all uh, take in Syrian refugees. Um, It's a pope beautiful religious leader who really um, uh, advocates for the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed and those who are suffering in very beautiful ways. So I want to do a little practice around this quality of empathy. And it's going to be an interactive practice. And But first I want to show a video. If we can get this, uh, if we can get a 19th century technology working, we might be able to show you some, an actual video. And uh, this is a video of um, an NBA game, a pre-NBA game. And uh, it's an it's a interesting study on uh, the quality of empathy and compassion, particularly compassionate leadership. So I want you to pay attention as you're watching the video and the the drama that goes on. I want you to really track your own experience, your heart particularly, and to feel into uh, whether the quality of empathy uh, or, or, or something else arises. Otherwise, we'll just look at Mark's email <laughs> inbox and um, <laughs> see what he's got to do on his to-do list.
So we hope you're all having empathy for Mark's um, valiant efforts here to um, figure out I would be completely lost at this point. Oh, do we have success? Oh, okay. We need sound. The sound is quite important in this video. Why don't you take it back to the beginning? Okay. So, and this involves a uh, NBA coach called Mo Cheeks. Okay, here we go. Do we have sound? Oh, we can put the mic up to the sound too, if you want. Ah, brilliant. Here it takes a village <laughs> to play a video. So t- take, take the... Uh, Okay, do you, you, you want me to turn that on? Yeah, in just a second, we hit the... Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how many tech operators? Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Maybe the... Maybe the m- oh, okay, all right. Okay. Please welcome, as voted by you, the fans, our winner of the Toyota Get the Feeling of a Star promotion, Natalie Gilbert. Can I get the mic? Usually when I play that, which is true tonight, there's a few uh, teary eyes in the room I'm sensing. So beautiful, uh, it's a powerful video, huh? regardless of the national anthem piece. It's, 
you like that or not, it's you know, another question. But um, <coughs> so first, we're feeling empathy, right? We move. She's up there singing. This is the biggest day of her l- life, probably, right? NBA game, national TV, blah blah blah. And then she crumbles. Right? And then what happens when you, she crumbles, right? You probably felt something, like, <gasps> you know. That's empathy. Right? We're feeling that heart resonance. Oh no, how awful. This little 14 year old girl, that's whatever she is. And we're also maybe putting ourselves in, in uh, her shoes, right? Imagine the embarrassment or the f- terror or the shame or who knows what she's going through, but a lot. Yeah. And then we have this beautiful example of compassion. <coughs> so Mo Cheeks, basketball coach, cannot sing to save his life. <laughs> <laughs> Completely irrelevant. Comes up, stands beside her, and is just this beautiful you know, pillar of support, you know, and coaches her along, puts his arm around her, you know, just encourages her to find her voice. And then when it's done, he walks off, there's no need for thanks, just gets on with his day. Yeah. So it's an interesting mm, marker, you could say, between the, the, there's a, a good example you could say of, of the movement from empathy to compassion. The empathy is feeling with, and the compassion is, I wish to help, and I wish, to, and I, I do something active. Right? So, um, any, wh- what are you noticing watching that? Any, any? What are you? Anything? Any comments? The comment was it's almost impossible to, to consider that how many of us don't know the words to that song. <laughs> to see how everybody comes together to sing with her. Yeah, I've seen a few videos like that where the audience... Actually, first what happens is people laugh, usually nervously, and because it's, it's very uncomfortable. And actually, one, one, one stadium, they actually booed. And sometimes they do boo when people... Uh, which, of course, is horrific. And then usually there's enough compassion in the, in the audience that they get cheered on. Actually, someone told me of a beautiful uh, uh, similar incident with, um, I think it was Whitney Houston, uh, in the latter part of her career, and she was singing a song, you know, one of her classic songs, and she loses the words, and then the, the audience carries it, and they're be- very compassionate, and she remembers and gets back on track. and. So let's do an exercise. I want to explore this theme of um, empathy. And there's a practice that I like uh, to do, and it's called Just Like Me. And um, 
what I'll do is I'll walk you through, just like in many uh, heart practices, I'll walk you through some phrases um, that uh, remind us that other people are not so different than us. We're fundamentally human with the same vulnerabilities and needs and hopes and wishes. So I'm going to ask you all to stand, partly to wake you up. And then we're going to do this uh, facing another person. Yeah. So mostly with our eyes closed. <laughs> um, so just turn, find someone, turn around, turn whoever's next to you. You might need to cross aisles or raise your hand if you don't have a partner. So look around, keep raising your hand. There's people at the front here. Keep raising your hand, keep moving around. There's another person at the front here. If you want to come up to the front, the lady in the polka dots. Okay, so um, first just start with your eyes closed. Just um, finding your, your, bringing awareness into your body. Feel your feet, feel your belly. Feel your breath. And even though your eyes are closed and you're being mostly aware of your body and your breath, you also be aware that there's someone standing in front of you. So have some some awareness of them, even with the eyes closed. And now just for a few moments, open your eyes, just take them in, just look at them. If eye contact's too much, you can look down, but just keep your eyes open, just have a sense of this person. Uh, and then you can lower your gaze or close your eyes. So this person standing in front of me is a human being, just like me. This person in front of me wants to be happy, just like me. This person has a body subject to aches and pains, aging, sickness and ill health, just like me. This person wants to be healthy, just like me. This person, no doubt, has had joys and successes and accomplishments just like me. This person, being human of this age, has no doubt experienced loss, disappointments, rejections, just like me. So again, just opening your eyes for a few moments, just registering this person, closing your eyes again. This person, you can keep them open if you want, but feel free to close your eyes. This person, no doubts, and if you need to sit down, that's fine. This person in front of me has a heart that wants to love and be loved just like me. This person is a friend 
and longs for friendship and connection, has friendship and connection, just like me. Maybe you can, in your own way, think think of the ways this person is just like me, not the same as me. We have our unique differences, qualities, so many things similar. This person at times probably feels vulnerable or lonely, just like me. This person is definitely aging, just like me, even if they're 15. And again, coming back to this fundamental wish, this person wishes to be, to find peace and well-being and true happiness, true meaning, true purpose, just like me. Again, based on that sense of possible connection, and just adding a few words of loving-kindness. Just as I wish to be happy, may you too be happy. Just as I wish to be safe, may you too be safe. May you be peaceful and free. Okay, and thanking your person and finding your seat. <laughs> so, just like um, meta practice, loving kindness practice and all the other heart practices, um, I find this a really nice portable practice. If I'm sitting in a meeting, I'm sitting on a bus, I'm stuck in traffic, waiting in line at the airport, this person is just like me. They just want to get to, they just want to get home and not be stuck in traffic. This person just like me wants to be loved and be in love. This person who's boring me to death in the meeting <laughs> just wants to do a good job, right? <laughs> I think, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> so it's a way of, I, I, and I've done this practice a lot when, um, uh, when someone comes through a door. Right? Sometimes when we, you know, we're in a room and someone comes in the door, often our, our sort of reptilian brain is more, who's this? What do they want? A little startled or a little unsure, the friend, foe. And so there's a sense of, oh, this person's just like me. They're just wanting to get through the door. They're just wanting to, you know, be happy or whatever. So, um, you know, it's so easy. I think part of our hard wiring is to feel separate. Uh, you know, either our egoic, egoic tendencies or just that sense of, of, of when we're ruled by fear, when we're ruled by 
needing to protect, to be safe. We often um, thwart connection. Any comments about that practice, just before I go on? What was it like to, to, to do just like me? Anybody want to shout out or we can pass a mic? You find it easier to fly when you think the pilot has a family just like you who he wants to get home safe, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What else? Comments, observations? Yes, lady in white and there in the middle. Oh yeah, she's got a strong voice. was dramatic to look somebody in the eye, to take that moment to look somebody in the eye. Uh-huh. And that the connection was so, like, energetically so positive mm-hmm. by what you were saying and then just looking at that person and seeing that, yes, we are very much in the same. Right. Yeah, it was very beautiful. Thank yeah, you. good. Yeah. Yeah, we don't often take the time, one, to look each other in the eye, and two, to actually take a moment to see what we have in common. Yeah. Anything else? Yes, this man at the back. Gave you a sense of ease? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good to see, good to see that connection, when there's a sense of connection that can bring ease. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes? Hi there, I was just going to say that I think we overlook that it's not just a human uh, trait to be able to have empathy and compassion. Um, the animal world does too, and I think it's uh, that interconnection between all living things, I think that uh, if you have that broader view of life, then we're all connected. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yep. Yep. All life wants to live, fundamentally. Wants to be safe. Wants to flourish. Anything else? Yes, please. What's hardwired? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean I was using hardwired a little loosely, but um Good. <laughs> 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 So I was you know, so the example that you know, like uh say we're in the forest, right? And we're back hundred thousand years and uh we hear a rustle in the bushes and we're alone. And we've got two choices. One is we run, right, in case it could, it could be a predator. 100,000 years ago, a lot of predators. Or it could be a mouse, 
It could be a non-threatening thing. It could be just a squirrel or something. So those that were took a lot of time to muse whether maybe it's a mouse, maybe it's a lion. No, it's probably a mouse. Mm -hmm. And those who ran, right? Which ones survived? Right, the ones who ran. Right, the more anxious, slightly fearful, suspicious. So that we've got that as part of our evolutionary heritage. It's not all of who we are by any means, but that's there's a certain kind of instinctual survival mechanism that makes us, you know, a little initially cautious. At, you know, so I'm speaking about that. It's not hardwired, but it's part of our biology for sure. Um, just as our striving for self-protection and for for you know hoarding all of that you know it's self it's 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 very strong primal instincts survive kinship of family etc and you know the pr- this practice and the dharma teachings are pointing to yes that's our biological heritage and we have this capacity to to live beyond that, to, you know, to not be ruled by fear or instinct in that way. So, you know, and, and clearly what I saw in Europe was that, f- that, f- that sort of instinctual, fearful, racist, um, otherness, right? Now I want to, st- the last piece of my talk, I want to speak about the obstacles right to the to empathy obstacles obstacles to the heart opening right? and then the first one is fear right? this fear of otherness of difference of separation um, and of not being of my tribe yeah. very strong you know and you know it's not you know i mean just look at european history you know it's it's one of in, in constant f- you know, fighting and feuds of otherness. So you know, the obstacles to the heart opening is, and also there's this fear, and then there's this, the, 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 the contraction of self, of w- what will I lose? You know, what will be threatened? My prosperity, my freedom, or, you know, the, uh, my affluence. There's less for me. How, how we know there's not enough jobs to go around, and with all these people coming in, there's going to be less for everybody. And, and so, a lot of views often primary. Right? This is not my problem. Right? I talked to somebody who said, "Why don't they just go back to Syria and sort out their own government?" I'm like, "How long do you have?" <laughs> This is a relative, so you know you give them a little more slack for being a relative. <laughs> so this belief that if if we hoard and if we put up the walls, we'll be happier. If we keep the others out, you know, they'll be happier. It's a view, strong view. I don't know if hoarding ever made anybody feel really happy. Not in my backyard, right? the NIMBYs. Right? So you know, and this this is I mean, and I'm talking about Europe because I just spent a lot of time in Europe. But you know, 
no different in the issues we face here, with immigration, with a sense of otherness, with a sense of creating separation, with a sense of fear around scarcity and resources. So, you know, sometimes, you know, Dharma talks are oriented towards, in like the, the Buddhist framework of Dharma, there's there's the problem and there's the solution, right? There's the suffering, there's the cause of suffering, there's the path to free oneself from suffering, and there's freedom from suffering. Right? This is a, a problem and solution path, right? I don't have the solution. <laughs> this is not one of those talks. But I want to speak to the problem and I want to speak to the issue. That right? our practice is about waking up in our lives with, with wisdom and compassion. Right? And we live in a world of increasing conflict and increasing challenge with resources and scarcity. And you know, when I think about this current immigration issue, I think this is nothing to when we have real climate crisis and we have millions of people who are displaced, who are their lands are flooded and coastal cities underwater. And this is, you know, the, the, the U.S. military's main global fear is around the, the displacement of huge populations because of the climate crisis. And this, is, this is coming down the pipe. This is what's happening in Syria. It feels like a small precursor, I think, to what's going to happen. And we have to figure out what's our response. Do we put up the walls and live in a gated world? Or do we find a more creative humanitarian response? So, but the imperative in our practice and in these Dharma teachings is how do we respond to the suffering in the world? Small, the suffering in myself, the suffering in those around me, and the suffering in my community, the suffering uh, in the world. How do I respond with care? How do I respond with compassion? How do I respond with balance and equanimity? So there's no answer, there's no solution, but there is a, uh, a, an imperative for us to, to look into these questions. What's our relationship to this? Do we think it doesn't concern us because we can live in our own bubble, and we can, it's an option. Do we have some moral duty? Do we have some mm, wish to you know, lobby our congressman and say, hey, what are you doing, how come the U.S. has only taken in 1.5 thousand, 1,500 Syrian refugees in the last many years. Um, this country is built on welcoming immigrants. We are, you know, this melting pot. So to just reflect on our response again, I'm not, I'm not positing a point of view or an opinion of what one should do, but I think it's important for all of us to look at the issues and to see where we stand, and to see where does, what, is my, what does my practice have to do to relate to this. Yeah. And you know, often in, in, in Dharma circles, we don't necessarily talk so much about current issues. And I feel like, it, but I feel like there's also a waking up in our community, and certainly in the Buddhist community, of the need for uh, these practices to engage in a very real, practical, concrete way. You know, 
how do we interface with the suffering of the world? Because we are the world, right? we're not separate, and we're becoming in increasingly interconnected, and we can't hide out in our ivory tower. So, but of course we have to all find out for ourselves what our, what our response is. So I'm going to close with um, a well-known quote from Mr. Einstein, who has a few wise things to say about a lot of things. A human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself or herself, thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and the foundation for inner security. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and the foundation for inner security. It's a beautiful frame that uh, there is no end point. Right? You know, the Buddha talks about Nibbana, about freedom as being the true security the true refuge, right? And, and, and so Einstein's point to this foundation for inner security, foundation for inner well-being, right? foundation for, for finding and expressing one's goodness. We all have innate goodness. And so partly these teachings is uncovering that, seeing that innate goodness in each other, and finding how we can best move and serve that goodness. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your attention and your practice, and I wish you well. Thank you. So these talks, as you may or may not know, um, all the talks here are uploaded to Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A Seed, S-E-E-D dot org. And so you can listen to these talks um, uh, online. And um, if you want to know more about my work, I have my web, one of my if you go to mindfulnessintheworld.com, you can access many of my websites. <laughs> in the world. In the world. Mindfulness in the world. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, everybody. <coughs> thank you for that. Oh, well, you know. So, Mark, if you can just turn off the um, recording. Thank you.